0: Hello and welcome to the India Energy Hour. I am Sandeep Pai, a former journalist with Hindustan Times and now an energy researcher at the University of British Columbia.
1: And I'm Shreya Jay, journalist with Business Standard newspaper in Delhi, writing on the energy sector.
0: Together, we are really excited to co-host a new podcast on India's energy transition, the India Energy Hour. This podcast is hosted by 101 reporters, an innovative news agency that connects grassroots reporters and media houses to bring out untold stories. The show is produced by Tejas, Dan, and Sagar of 101 Reporters.
1: In this podcast, we want to unpack and document India's energy transition. We will interview leading energy, development and climate experts from academia, civil society and the government. Through these interviews, we will explore the most pressing hurdles and promising opportunities in the energy transition unfolding in India. We will examine the role of government, finance, social justice, and science. Over time, we will feature other countries of the global south as well.
0: India's electricity sector is facing two major challenges. Low electricity demand and massive overcapacity. On the one hand, renewable energy installations are on the rise in the country, but it is often curtailed. Over 100 gigawatts of solar and wind power have already been installed, and 50 gigawatts is under installation, and 27 gigawatts is under tendering. On the other hand, India is building several gigawatts of additional coal power, yet many of the efficient coal-fired power plants remain underutilized. So can India optimize its power sector such that renewables thrive and efficient coal power plants get preference? Can this be done such that India reduces its carbon and environmental footprint? In this episode, we spoke to Dr. R. Srikant, professor and dean, School of Natural Sciences and Engineering at the National Institute of Advanced Studies, who proposes that India can shut down its old, inefficient coal-fired power plants to achieve these optimization goals. This proposal emerged from a large study Dr. Srikant and his colleagues undertook, focusing on the transition plan for thermal power plants in India. Dr. Srikant has been an academic and industry professional for over three decades. He has worked with large Indian companies such as Coal India and Tata Steel, advised government bodies, and has researched and written extensively about the energy sector
1: thank you dr shrikant for joining us uh, it's it's a delight to have you here and it's a very interesting topic that we will discuss today uh, your report that you uh, mentioned is out after 3 years of work on how india's uh, co india can transition away from coal especially thermal power units how are we planning that thermal power units Can, you know, older units can be shut or retrofitted? What is the way out? How do you replace that much amount of generation capacity? So I believe it's a very interesting and thought-provoking topic, especially in a country like India, obsessed with coal-based power. So thank you again for joining. Uh, Before we begin and delve into this very interesting topic, I was wondering if you would like to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, about your career trajectory. Uh, where are you from? Uh, what all have you worked on? And how did you land up into researching this energy sector specifically? Thank
2: you, Shreya. First of
1: all, uh,
2: I appreciate this opportunity to speak to you and Sandeep. So I actually uh, started, you uh, know, I did my uh, schooling largely in Andhra Pradesh, in uh, southern Andhra Pradesh. But I uh, was born in Tamil Nadu. And uh, so after finishing my schooling, I joined Indian School of Mines. Uh, in Dhanbad. So uh, in 1979, I was the la- last but second uh, five-year batch. So I spent five years studying my B.Tech in mining engineering. And uh, so after that, joined Coal India. I worked in Coal India underground coal mines uh, for six years in uh, Madhya Pradesh. The, the desire to learn more, you know, uh, struck me. And then uh, I got offers to study management at uh, Ahmedabad and uh, also this opportunity to do a master's and PhD with a full fellowship at Penn State. Uh Penn State uh, was and is actually the topmost uh, mining school in the world. And uh, so um <clears throat> and it was for I mean the mining department there is more than hundred and fifty years old. Even Indian School of Mines now was founded in 1956. So uh, so my classmate actually is uh became the director of Indian School of Mines a few years back. So, so I'm pretty old, okay. Uh, uh, so I f- finished uh, my uh, master's in mining. Then I decided that uh, uh, that I wanted to get into the uh, science of quantification. The one big difference that Sandeep will tell you between Indian education system and the American education system. Uh, I can't comment on the others, but at least I can comment on the American system and the Indian system. Uh, American system relies heavily on quantification. You know, numbers are basically very, very important. So, uh, I was very fascinated by that because uh, uh, that what I believe is the numbers actually help us to be more objective. But of course, there is much more to life other than numbers. Uh, but numbers are also very, very important. And uh, sometimes, you know, emotions cloud the debate if you don't have the numbers to prove what you say. But of course, what are those numbers is very important. So you should have the right numbers about the right things on the table. So before you do something, correct. So, I uh, then I decided to do a double PhD in mining and uh, operations research. So, I finished that uh, in 1996, uh, December. I I was just, I was really desperate to return to India, though it was the Clinton years. And, you know, I mean, the convocation I had was actually uh, President Clinton gave away the degree. So, I jumped on the last, uh, I mean, the day my convocation was over, I returned to India uh, that night. I flew back to India. I said, I'm going to, join uh, the industry. I'm fed up with academia now. So I joined industry, I joined Tata Steel, worked there uh, in the raw materials division. Uh, I was general manager of Tata Steel Mines, uh, for a few years. And then I said that, okay, that I want to go to a, uh, international mining company. So then I joined, uh, the, uh, an international mining company, an Australian company. I was, there. I was there for five years. Then I said, okay, that uh, now is the time for me to do something different. And uh, I was always planning to go to academia after 60, But I said that, okay, let me join while I'm still pre-retirement. So therefore, in 55, I came to Bangalore and I always wanted to settle down in uh, close to my hometown. So I came back from north. After a lifetime in the north, I came back to the south. And uh, so I started academics in 2016. So just finished uh, five years. So that's how basically, and because of my background that I had in coal, in uh, in raw materials, in iron ore, in raw materials. So naturally, this opening was there in the Energy and Environment uh, program. And uh, so uh, that's how I came into the field of uh, Energy and Environment. Wow, th-
0: that's so fascinating. You know, you have, I mean, you were studying in ISM when, you know, Coal India was born in the same decade. So uh you know it's it's kind of uh, fascinating your journey from uh, sort of academia and then industry and then back to academia i wonder i mean just just to expand on this i wonder like which of the two you think had the more enriching experience or you would say you've you've learned different things from both academia and working in the industry and if you can elaborate on that if, if there's any difference actually sandeep uh,
2: the the big tragedy of academia in india is the fact that uh, our uh, most of our faculty are not connected with industry and the difference between uh, us and india is very very stark in that uh, aspect that uh, that's the reason that you see like you know penn state where i studied had a billion dollars of research funding every year so that's not all from government but it's also from industry because actually the professors are very closely connected with the industry and uh, that actually is very important for the students Because it actually brings them closer to cutting-edge research, It helps them to get better jobs. It helps them to get an education which is uh, much more modern than what they would actually learn from textbooks. So I think uh, this is what I have learned in the US. These are the good points of an American education. You can always say there are good and bad everywhere. But these are the good points that I learned uh, that in American education. And uh, uh, my career industry has been very, very enriching because... uh, One thing I had been, uh, I had been very clear right from the first day of my industrial career in uh, July 1984 that I will every year I will pick up something different. I will do something different, which I have not done in the previous year. So I have a daytime job, but I will do something even for my company, which is different from what I have done. I'll add some incremental value, which is unique. So I have been learning throughout my life. So therefore, one can be in industry and one can also learn. So and one can practice. So therefore, Uh, This is something I have found uh, very important because if you don't learn when you're in industry, then basically you will never become an innovator. And industry needs innovators as much as, you know, startups. So again, coming back from industry to academia has been, I think, uh, sort of my unique uh, selling proposition. Obviously, there are many people who doubt whether I have the academic credentials, though I have got all the degrees that are there. But people say, you know, you have not published papers in the last 20 years. So you don't have enough publications. You cannot be recognized as a PhD guy because you don't have, <laughs> you know, enough journal uh, scopus in uh you know, journal publications, right? So I faced all those hurdles. and uh, the, But, you know, uh, because I, again, come from an industry background and, you know, we, uh, we are used to write board papers. And uh, so I can do those things very fast because uh, uh, industry moves at a different speed compared to academia. So I finished all those prerequisites to become a PhD guide. And so... Uh, that's all done. So, you know, you know every sector has got a, what I would say, a different eligibility criteria. And I think if your uh, brain is flexible, if you are willing to adapt and willing to learn, I think it is possible to switch. And I think, uh, so that's, that's how things have happened. And uh, I really wish that more people would do this sort of backwards and forwards. And even our government uh, requires uh, some of these things because otherwise, uh, the bureaucracy, as you know, in India becomes completely fossilized in uh, in thinking. So I think uh, this is uh, something I think the American system uh, allows people to move between academia, government, industry. So I think uh, with uh, reasonable restrictions on the code of ethics, etc., and disclosures, I think uh, it's it's a very good thing to do because it helps to keep everybody on their toes. Number one, it helps everybody, the top people in the government also, to be in touch with reality.
0: Not like you, but I have also, I was a journalist. I was an engineer, then a journalist, and now I finished my PhD. So I've also made switches and I, I can, I know that these transitions are not easy. When I was a journalist, my editors would say, you know, this is very academic. When I was in academia, they would say, oh, it's too journalistic. So, you know, in, in my own small ways, I have, I've seen some of these switches, uh, so let's start the topic of today's discussion. Um, you know, uh, you have you and your co-authors have come up with this really interesting report about you know uh, transition plan for integrated approach to development and environment in power sector. Um, I think it's a really pertinent topic of you know how we integrate renewables and what we do with our coal capacity. How do we optimize? Um, so I really enjoyed reading uh, the report thoroughly. Um, So, you know, when you look at this report, one of the things you conclude is that, you know, India can shut down some of its inefficient uh, older, uh, you know, power plants. In fact, you say that around 36 gigawatts of thermal power plants uh, can be shut down on the basis. And you do this uh, using different parameters such as efficiency, you know, coal, uh, specific coal consumption, technological obsolescence and age. Uh, And you also propose how that shortfall can be met by, you know, using a bunch of different things, which uh, I would let you explain. Uh, So I'm wondering if, you know, from the beginning, do you want to start by like first laying out what the methodology was uh, and then like what what were your key findings beyond what I mentioned?
2: Like, uh, thanks for reading the report, really appreciate that. And uh... Uh, because uh, <laughs> uh, very few people like reading, you know, reports. So we try to make it as graphical and, you know, as possible and easy to read as possible. So, you know, coming to this thing, actually, so this uh, proposal that we gave, I gave to DST was in 2000, uh, sometime in 2016 end, and ultimately it's rectified in the project in 2018, uh, June. And so it took about one year of uh, basically proposal, then evaluation, uh, etc., but the fundamental principle that I had was that development and environment have to go together. You cannot delink both of them. Okay, so uh, so that is the approach because I come from the Tata Group. So therefore, that is an approach that is very firmly embedded in me. You. you know, you have to be socially and environmentally responsible uh, in order to basic to continue in business, and that is part of your uh, uh, you know what we used to call a balance scorecard, which uh, uh, which Tata still used to practice at that. So, therefore, this whole thing is that you cannot go into one extreme or the other extreme. So, you have to basically uh, try to see how you can develop a pathway which actually integrates both these aspects. And obviously, there will be compromises uh, in the way because a big country like India, which is growing, where the energy needs of the people are growing, you need energy. There can be no way that you can say that, uh, I mean, study after study has proved that uh, human development index is directly proportional to the per capita energy consumption up to a certain point. After that, obviously, it plateaus off, and I think that everybody knows that. So we are at a lower end of that scale, and so therefore, we need to increase our uh, consumption of modern energy, which actually means firewood, uh, gobar, etc., should, uh, should be replaced by modern sources, and that is actually SDG 7.1. So the Sustainable Development Goals incorporate, you know, uh, access to universal access to affordable, sustainable, and modern sources of energy. So that is one part of it. But another part of it is obviously that you know we don't have infinite amount of land. India is a very uh, densely populated country, and therefore we also need to look at what uh, how we can actually safeguard our environment in the most affordable way that is possible. I mean, I'll give an analogy. Uh, I love cars. You know, basically, I, I would love to have a Mercedes Benz, but unfortunately, you know, I don't have enough money to uh, buy a Mercedes-Benz and more importantly, even if I buy it, you know, I don't want to... I'm not going to use it as much because uh, the people who are around me don't value this sort of big uh, positions. So, uh, there's not much use for me. So, the whole question is that how do we find a, a sort of happy, happy middle, okay? And that has been the sort of, you know... Uh, see, Tata Steel, is, I think as many of you know also, it's uh, very... Uh, you know, it's 100% unionized, okay. But we still do a tremendous amount of changes uh, in operating practices and staffing practices and all that. And one thing my cadastral experience has actually taught me is how do you actually bring people to the middle, okay? How do you bring the unions and how do you bring the local communities to the middle to say, yes, what is a win-win-win solution? So this has been the sort of driving factor for this uh, research that uh, we need to see that... All the three legs of sustainable development, that is the economy, the people, the environment, all three need to gain and they need to go together. You cannot have one leg getting more importance at the expense of the other. So this has also been one aspect that, uh, uh, you know, sustainability is not simply only about environment. Unfortunately, the popular uh, usage makes it appear that people are irrelevant. You no, know, people are very relevant. Their, their aspirations, their needs, Uh, their affordability, all those are very, very important factors, particularly for Indians. So, I think this may not resonate very well in the developed world and I had a uh, delivery talk to TCS Europe recently and many of the Europeans in that, you know, could not understand uh, much of these things, right? Uh, So, but at least as you know, all of you are Indians, all of us are Indians, we can understand affordability is a very, very important issue and it's very important to make energy which is like a fundamental and uh, necessity also affordable to people correct uh, so that that is how basically we approach this project that how do we actually uh, make energy affordable, make energy more climate friendly, and make energy more environment friendly so and last but not the least, how do you actually ensure that uh, uh, we have energy security uh, because as you know, That, uh, you know, the TAPI pipelines, all people, you know, so much effort has been made on getting gas to India through, uh, you know, Afghan pipelines through Afghan Turkmenistan and then uh, Myanmar. And all those have actually fallen by the wayside mainly because of geopolitical factors. And if you look at basically our reserves that we have got, that I think uh, the BP report accurately summarizes that uh, we have got uh, our reserve by production ratio, which is uh, the amount of reserves, proven reserves that you have with the ground. Compared to what you produce annually per year is now more than 150 for coal. And it is actually, you know, 50. I mean, it's in very small numbers compar- relatively for oil and gas. And we all know that basically, despite all the efforts, our import dependence on crude oil is increasing. Natural gas actually is coming down. So therefore, we actually try to diversify our energy basket. No doubt we had been doing it for the last 15, 20 years, but we could not succeed because maybe. Not maybe, it is actually because we are not geologically endowed with enough of hydrocarbons. And we have to accept that as a necessity. There is no point in basically hunting the last piece of oil and the last piece of gas because by the time you take it out, you will be spending so much, it will be cheaper to import. Undoubtedly, coal is basically the only source of energy security that we have. So once that is there, so the whole question is, how do you use coal sustainably? And I think that is a very important question. And uh, what I feel, unfortunately, mainly because many people who write on this have not come from a technical background of experience in mines uh, or utilization, uh, power plant utilization. The second thing is industry being largely in the government sector is sort of you know immune to uh, many of these influences. So if it had been all private sector, changes would be coming rapidly. So if you look at Katastin, for example, that, you know, we adopted this, uh, you know, MDG, that's what actually our previous MD, my boss, uh, Mr. Mutarawan, started, you know, way back in 2000 of millennium, millennium development goals. And we started implementing many of these uh, concepts of how do you make things we. Uh, I implemented the first rainwater, rainwater harvesting project uh, in the entire country in the mining. And it has been recognized by CIFT because till that point of time everybody thought river is there let us to get water from the river so nobody thought basically yes, how do you harvest the water that is actually rainfall that is actually falling so that you minimize taking water from the river which actually should go to people and to livestock uh, rather than to industry right so there so therefore if it is private sector advantage is the changes happen rapidly because you are actually in touch with uh, these shareholders you are more uh, susceptible to pressures as well from, uh, you know, uh, foreign investors, Indian investors, uh, etc. So, I think uh, because of the structure of the power sector and the structure of the uh, mining, uh, particularly coal sector, they have actually not adapted to this need to be more sustainable, fast enough. Okay. And I think technology is available. Uh, and it's all demonstrated proven technology. There is not much R&D required to say that how you can increase the energy efficiency of your boilers to such a point that basically you can reduce your emissions by 20% uh, and still rely on coal. So therefore, uh, all these technologies are available. They have been proven. The only problem basically is that all these technologies were all invented, most of them in the United States. And basically, they're obviously very costly. But they were costly relative to the, say, supercritical plants 10, 15 years back. If you look at today's age, what are the needs of society? What are the needs of uh, government in terms of environmental norms? The needs are totally different. So now if you want to retrofit the flue gas desulphurizers and if you do all that, obviously the cost of a new power plant increases to 7 megawatt or so. And now you actually have a whole host of uh, technologies like... uh, this advanced ultra-critical technology and even better, the IGCC, the Integrated Gasification Combined Cycle Technology, which are far more uh, energy efficient. And IGCC has got the additional advantages which it's CO2 capture ready. So you can get CO2 as a separate stream. And that is a great thing that you can do if you're able to utilize the stream, if you're able to take out the carbon, that carbon can be used as carbon black, which has got you know huge uh, uses uh, downstream, in entire industry, et cetera. So, there is technology available. There are plants running in the world on this technology in Korea, in uh, Africa and in the uh, US. The issue basically is that somewhere, because it is a government-dominated industry, the desire to basically go for this technology takes time. And it unfortunately, it's, it has to come through a government mandate rather than basically uh, the desire to improve. Okay. Uh, and as all of you know, that uh, though the... Uh, private sector power plants came up in a big way. Unfortunately, because at that point of time, you know, uh, our procurement system is all, uh, even for power, it's basically lowest. So therefore everybody went for Chinese power plants and therefore they bought the cheapest and the uh, dirtiest, I mean, <laughs> so to speak. So that's what everybody has done. So uh, the issue is that, uh, you know, it's it's a sort of uh, the make of the uh, sector players, the giants. There are always exceptions. Like, for example, if you look at the uh, data Power, they put up Mundra. Mundra came with FGDs even before it was fashionable to use FGDs. So, like Sasan, which actually came up much later, uh, you know, at just around the same time, they are installing FGDs now, whereas Mundra, right from the end beginning, and it's located in a very remote part of India and close to the sea, where, you know, the breeze is so heavy. But they installed it. They have put in the world's best technology right in the beginning. So, therefore, there are some groups which are technology heavy, which rely on technology to solve many of these problems. And I really firmly believe that science and technology is, can produce solutions. And I think the vaccine that we are seeing is a very classic case that how in record time a vaccine could be rolled out and how it could actually save billions of people in the world. So therefore, science and technology has got solutions. Unfortunately, the energy sector has been very slow in uh, adapting to this and you know implementing this. And what we are trying to do in this report is also to show the way forward that basically, yes, there is a short-term solution, that's why we, we call it a transition path. But after post 2030, we need to start having the mandates now that how do you make, how do you implement technology? Because once technology is applied at scale, obviously the cost will actually come down, come crashing down and India has got scale. So therefore, the whole thing is for the government to look at what happens. Not really now, how do you transition to a cleaner power sector in the next 7-8 years before 2030? And after 2030, the future of coal should be more on uh, technology-focused uh, uh, solutions, which will actually reduce emissions, which will actually make CO2 capture ready if possible. Uh, and I think those things should be part of uh, government policy and as well as industrial policy of uh, the power sector itself. Could uh, you mention about the
1: government policy? Uh... You know, there have been uh, efforts to retire old thermal units in different ways or under different policies. Earlier, it was planned that all state government-owned units worth 11 gigawatt should be retired because they're not efficient. Then there came the Ministry of Environment and Forest Norms, which asked for inefficient units to either retrofit FGD or retire a certain amount. The retrofit has not been a much success, With a lot of units, it has seen a very slow start and the deadline keep getting extended. And there are several other calculations that were done. There have been independent reports also which suggest different measures on which unit should be retired, which should be retrofitted. So basis of your calculations that you have done in your report, uh, can you help us understand that what is the basis of you suggesting these number of plants uh, that should be retired completely? What is the basis of your calculation and what are rational and methods uh, did you use there?
2: Uh, thanks for this question, Shaya. So our work is actually a bottoms-up analysis. Uh, we are not started from the top saying that this should be the policy and how to implement it. So what we have done basically is over a period of this, uh, it has taken us two years to collect data from uh, on more than 200 power stations in the country and largely through RTI. So we have collected basically from their environmental statements which they submit to the Pollution Control Boards, from their environmental compliance statements that they submit to uh, MOEF and uh, Pollution Control Boards. We have actually collected uh, these documents from more than 200 power stations in the country and uh, for three years in each case. So therefore, what we have done basically is that uh, I think Sandeep has done this with the coal mines. So we have done a very similar thing that we have actually collected data from the bottom that is the compliance reports uh, water consumption SO2 emissions particular matter emissions so NOx emissions SOx emissions so we have collected uh, coal consumptions power generation so therefore we have collected all this uh, bottoms up you know data from 200 plus power stations in the country and that is what the data that actually we have plotted in our report I think figure 3A 3B 3C they actually show that what they basically show is that these smaller units, by, by design were actually not designed for reducing uh, particulate matter emissions below 100 like, uh, milligram per meter. They were Those norms did not exist at that time. And therefore, they were actually uh, emitting higher uh, amounts of particulate matter emissions. Similarly, what is happening is they were not designed for actually very high level of water conservation. So therefore, basically initially, of course, some of the plants Actually, we are using what is called the once-through technology, which means that you take the water and basically just use it in steam and then discharge it to the atmosphere. And you take water back again, so you don't recycle it. So fortunately, many of the plants actually started recycling later and they started adding uh, recycling equipment to to reduce makeup water consumption. But even then, uh, what is called the number of cycles of concentration, the number of times that you can actually recycle the water and make it fit for use in the power plant, that has actually increased over time. As a result, what has happened, water consumption in the newer plants is about 50% of that uh, of the older plants. So therefore, we have collected data, all this grassroots data, and that is what we have plotted and summarized in the box plots, to show that the more modern, the larger plants have been designed, and they are operating with a much lower water consumption, with much lower particulate matter emissions as per the statutory returns. So, therefore, the criteria that we have used is basically that, you know, what is the performance of these plants? You know, there are some uh, old plants, like for example, if you look at, say, Tata Power's uh, plant in Trombe. So, it is in the very close to the Bombay, but it uh, uses actually ultra low uh, sulfur and ultra low ash coal and a boiler that is the first 500 megawatt. Uh, boiler in the country it's more than 30 years old operating super efficiently uh, same thing with dahanu which actually was set up uh, by BACS uh, when mr shahi was md the and then uh, taken over by reliance and uh, now by adani so it's a very efficient plant again using a blend of imported coal and washed coal etc so we have to collect all this data first of all so as i told that basically i believe in the quantification so therefore this the, the bedrock of this report is basically the data that we have collected over a long period of time. Now, once you look at this data and then what, what really emerges is that the newer plants definitely are using the natural resources like water and coal much more efficiently than the older plants, number one. Number two, the whole question is the new environmental norms that are actually coming in. That prior to 2003, there was no mandate. For the, uh, thermal power plants in India to even keep space for flue gas desulfurizer. So they were all, that mandate did not exist. It's only after plans that came post 2004 that actually this mandate was said that you have to, in the environmental clearance, the Ministry of Environment uh, started saying, putting one sentence that you have to, have to provide space in the layout for an FGD if it becomes a mandate later. So now those plants which do not have space in the layout, You see, a power plant is a very, very, uh, what I would say, hazardous area, right? you got hot uh, steam and hot gases, uh, hot coal all over. And you have to be very careful in doing, you know, uh, brownfield construction in those areas. So if you don't have space, so obviously it creates a lot of issues that you have to, the cost of uh, retrofit actually increases uh, and it actually becomes uh, uh, the shutdown periods. For the power plant actually become very long because the amount of on-site construction for the retrofit increases so they so therefore that is another basically sort of you know constraint that that is there in the world of plants uh that they could actually even if you force them to do they can do it anything can be done with money but then their cost actually becomes very high and though their fixed cost after 25 years would have come to near zero what would actually happen is the cost of this retrofits becomes very high the second thing is that if you look at the older plants, the CA norm says, because as we just, everything, you know, all the tubes in the boiler, they're all carrying hot gases, hot steam. And then they have to cool down. And uh, whenever this backing down of power plants happen, because, and that has become more frequent nowadays because of solar power in the daytime. And therefore, many of the power plants are told to back down so, or shut down completely. So therefore, you have to, you have this cycles of, uh, you know, lighting up, Firing, then basically again actually, you know, backing down. So, therefore, this results in something called mechanically fatigue. So, human beings also ex- uh, experience, all of us have experienced fatigue at various points of time. So, even for a mechanical equipment, it actually experiences fatigue. And fatigue is very dangerous in a mechanical uh, piece of equipment like a tube or a rod or a steel plate because fatigue means it can feel suddenly at any point of time. So, therefore, the central city authority has actually mandated that after these power plants are crossed to something like 100, 160,000 hours, uh, which is reached around 25 years, that they have to go in for what is called a residual life cycle analysis to, to operate the plants safely. And that actually what CEA studies have shown, when people do it, then they find that many of those tubes, you know, 50% of the boiler actually needs to be thrown out and needs to be changed. And therefore, what happens is as per the experience in India, the Central Industry Authority has found that you have to incur 50% of the capex of a new plant for this uh, what is called renovation life extension beyond 25 years. You can operate till 40 years, technically, no problem. But you have to do this exercise of life extension and renovation modernization. And this actually consumes this itself without any FGD, consumes around 50% of the capex, and that is the study done by CEA. And the time taken, you know, basically because you open up the boiler, you will take out the tubes, then you have to order the tubes. Then basically VHL has to say, okay, see, what can I do? I am producing tubes now for the modern boilers. I have to dedicate one plant only for making smaller tubes. So all this actually takes a lot of lead time. So the plant is shut down for a year or so. So it obviously leads to revenue loss uh, for the gen, gen And therefore, while there was a need for doing all of these exercises earlier, uh, the Gen- GENCOS have lost interest in doing the life extension and renovation and modernization. Plus, what is actually happening is if you want to look at the new norms, there is also a requirement for plants to basically be more flexible, which actually means that the government says that actually because solar power is coming to its peak at 12 noon and reducing to near zero at 6 p.m., where the peak demand in India is around 7 p.m., the, the thermal power plants also should dance to the tune of the renewable energy which means that they have to reduce to a minimum in the daytime and then increase sharply in the evening hours so that they are able to meet the peak demand so this dance that actually happens requires a technical a, a technical minimum and a ramp rate which basically from the minimum they are able to ramp up to peak capacity to meet the peak demand to prevent load shedding so if this ramp rate is not sufficient you have to basically do load shedding so therefore but a lot of backing down of solar power actually happens because our older power plants were not designed for this. The coal power plants in India have not been designed to be flexible. They have been designed to be base load plants. Base load plants means that you have to operate them at continuously at a rated capacity or 80% of the rated capacity. That is when they actually operate as per the design parameters of, you know, Energy efficiency, water consumption, all those efficiency parameters are all actually rated when it is operating at near, at near rated capacity. So now when you start telling the old plants that you have to do this and you have to, you know, you have to go to 55% at a minimum, uh, reach a level, operate at a level of 55% and you have to ramp up at a rate of 1% of capacity per minute, it is technically not feasible. They were not designed for that. Nobody ever asked them to do. So therefore, it was not part of the design. So, therefore, we have got a large bunch of this technology issues, which basically have been ignored till now. And therefore, uh, because somebody will come, an will come and say, no, you have to do this, you have to do that. So, the whole problem is, you know, as uh, Shriya, you know, government uh, officials very well, they'll hear through one year and uh, pass it through the other year, right? So, they say, yes, 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 sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. So, they will do what they want because the plant is not inherently capable of doing this. But the problem basically is there is nobody to explain that to a LA lay audience, and there are very few people like you who are even interested in knowing what is actually the constant. So there are reports which we are referred to in our, uh, you know, report which by POSACO, by CEA, which actually show that the ramp rate of the power sector is much much lower compared to what is actually required in the future when we need to integrate a larger amount of renewable energy. So therefore, these are technology issues. Right, And these technology issues need to be understood by somebody who has been in that business and therefore knows that business. So the technological limitations of the older power plants are not completely expressed uh, by the power sector itself. Because nobody wants to say no. That is a problem in India. right? And there's a problem not in India. There's a problem with Indians everywhere that we just keep quiet when we want to descend. We don't say openly that this is right or this is wrong. So, therefore, actually, the sector basically is bedeviled with all these issues. And what we have actually tried to do is to surface all these issues and say that, yes, you know, there are technological limitations to what can be done by the world of power plants. And because of that, actually, they cannot be as flexible as the government wants them to be. You may have any amount of CA norms or in norms, but they largely remain on paper because uh, really the plants, most of this, uh, all of these plants, the older plants are not capable that like 250 megawatt, 210 megawatt, 110 megawatt. Those units are not capable of doing all the dancing to the tune of renewable. So, therefore, if renewable is going to be a big part of our energy future, which surely is going to be, we need to basically find a way of retiring those plants. So, the opportunity that we have today is that, you know, in the 2012 to 2019 period, we have got a huge increase in number of uh, power plants coming on stream and getting underloaded because the demand has not grown at the same pace that was anticipated in the 18th electric power survey. See, the 18th electric power survey was issued in 2011, and many of these power plants basically were conceived where the power purchase agreements were signed at that point of time when basically the India was in the growth phase. Uh, you know, the economy was booming. The power, uh, if you recall, that we had huge. Uh peak demand shortages, even to the tune of 20% in those years. And therefore, there was an urgent need to basically ramp up electricity. Uh, and you know, coal was the only solution at the time. So many of those plants were sanctioned, many of those plants have come. And unfortunately, the private sector power plants, after some time, they all fell by the wayside. But the government plants have continued. So, therefore, most of the power stations that actually have come up uh are all you know are or continue to be under construction, they're all owned by government, in which uh, there are 47 units which we have listed specifically by numbers. We have evaluated their actual status on the ground that basically, what is the status as per BHL? What is the status as per CEA? We know what state that these plants are on. And if you can see that for this 47 units, already government companies have invested 1,77,000 crores till May 2021. That is 1.77 trillion rupees of public money already invested in these plants. And because these are government plants, they already come with power purchase agreements. They already come with coal supply agreements. So therefore, they are going to operate at very low efficiency levels if the older plants also continue to operate. So putting all this together, that's what we are trying to do, is that as you know retire the older plants, bring these new plants on stream, and the new plants automatically will consume much lesser coal, which therefore reduces CO2 the emissions, which reduces PM uh, pollution, etc. They will—they are designed to consume water as less than three meter cube per megawatt hour. So therefore, water consumption will also come down, and therefore the number of plants in the system will come down dramatically, and therefore grid integration also becomes simpler. And what has actually happened is that because these plants have been planned, you know, seven, eight, nine years back. Already the grid connectivity is existing. So therefore, they are or they can be connected to the grid because already the transmission system has reached them. And there is no difficulty, you don't have to lay a new transmission line which actually creates further right-of-way issues. So we have actually done this as, as something which is doable. So yeah, I completely agree with you that there have been many sort of you know, guidelines in the past. What we are trying to do is, this is something that we have discussed in three stakeholder consultation workshops. Plus, what we do is that we actually try to, you know, meet the regulators, uh, the state regulators. As uh, all of you know, you know, power is a concurrent subject. And incidentally, most of these plans that are to be retired actually belong to the state governments. They belong to the state gencos. And it's very important to take them into confidence. So, we meet the state gencos, we meet the uh, regulators, and uh, we try to convince them. So therefore, uh, this we do as a sort of our, uh, what I would say is uh, be a good citizen effort and uh, explain to them this thing. And hopefully what happens is that uh, they use this report as a sort of, uh, you know, there are good people uh, and technically qualified people in the government course also. They understand what they are trying to do. This expresses exactly the limitations of their older plans, why they cannot do. And they may find it useful to get support for retiring their
0: plants and switching over to the needs Wonderful. I mean, I, you touched on so many interesting topics and I'm going to pick on one, which is you talked about demand. Uh, and, you know, like your report, I think covers till 2030. Uh, and based on that demand, you know, you sort of made a estimate that even if you retire this, you can ramp up and use the already under construction power plants plus uh, you know, the power plants which are running under low uh, you know, efficiency, you can ramp them up. Uh, so this is sort of a big picture question beyond, and you can speculate, and of course, it's beyond 2030 is a little bit, you know, future futuristic. But does India need to build more than what we have, more power plants, more than what we have? If we have to, you know, we are planning 450 gigawatts by 2030, and then who knows? The next target would be much higher, and and so to balance that, would we need to construct more coal-fired power plants?
2: See, what will uh, after this uh, stream of plants, which are under active construction, which we have, you know, specifically given the unit names and the date of commissioning in the report, after that is all over by 2030. So the question is, what happens after 2030? Now. There are a number of uh, imponderables in this. One is basically how will India's, India's economy continue to grow, particularly industries, okay? So it is very important for the manufacturing to increase in India. Otherwise, our demographic de- dividend will become a demographic disaster. So it, it, youth need to get jobs. And therefore, whatever needs to be done to basically promote the manufacturing in India needs to be done because manufacturing provides both direct employment and indirect employment, which is basically several times that of the direct employment. And that's very much required. Now, the power demand figures that actually we have used in the report actually come from a study done by KPMG uh, and published by Central State Authority. The demand figures that I have presented basically are based upon what they call the base case, a GDP growth rate of 7.3% CAGR. So, that is the assumption of that, uh, that is what, and they have actually done a very detailed state-wise power demand analysis. And what we found is that we have found it sufficiently rigorous that we could actually take it without any further modification and we have adopted those figures. Those figures actually run up to 2036-37. Okay. So, therefore, there is going to be an increase in the power demand in India right up to 2040. So, you can say... So the peak demand as well as electricity requirement is going to increase. There is no way that we are going to plateau in the next 20 years. That is something that everybody needs to realize. Right? We are not a UK or you know France or Germany where basically it has plateaued off. And I think uh, uh the challenge for India is how do you increase electricity generation and at the same time try to control your emissions? So we have got a twin challenge. It is not, and third challenge, of course, is how do you manage it within the money that we have, given the fact that basically the COVID time has actually exposed what are all the frailties in our social sector and the healthcare sector? So therefore, given the state of government, uh, you know, funding that is available, our tax GDP ratio, etc. So therefore, there will always be you know more demands for public money than what actually public money is available, correct? So, but we have to grow. There is no way that basically that no projection can actually show. That India's power demand is actually going to plateau after 2030. It is going to grow. So now, one is basically to what extent. So from our analysis of the two reports by the Central State Authority, one is the what is called the 19th Electric Power Survey that was released in 2017, and this report actually uh, for which the groundwork has been the model has been developed by KPMG and then vetted by CEA, which has come out in 2019. There is a difference of roughly 50 gigawatt by 203637 so that 50 gigawatt will actually mean you know basically uh, what is going to be the future role of coal etc now we come to the targets the whole question i think what we have to realize is that we had a target for 175 and if you read the standing committee of parliament reports where the mnre secretary has been asked to this there is a recent report that has come out in march 2021 uh which is a standing committee on energy and the title of the report is really suggestive, it's basically 175 gigawatt anyway, right? So, that whole report is on 175 gigawatt. Obviously, there are a lot of constraints on the ground. And one of the major constraints on the ground is that you require a huge amount of land for, uh, you know, four to five acres per uh, megawatt of power, number one. Number two, basically, yes, you can say you can put all of it in the third desert, right? But the problem basically then is that you also have to build the transmission capacity. And then the whole problem is that the way the transmission capacity system works is that you have to have redundancy because if one line gets cut off, then basically you can't have plunged, uh large portions of you know the country or like what happened in Delhi uh, sometime back into darkness. So you need to have actually redundancy built into the system. Otherwise, you'll have blackouts. So the whole question is you cannot put all your eggs into one basket. You can say, okay, I'm going to have, Ladakh has got the best place to put solar. Yes, fine. But, you know, we all know what is happening in now. So, therefore, uh, you cannot, you know, there are security issues involved around all of these issues. So, therefore, another problem basically that is happening is that I think has been written recently in Business Standard by Jyoti, just, I think, a couple of days back. The variable renewable energy sources have got a lot of side effects. The side effects is basically coming from the inherent variability. Just like I said that basically the older thermal power plants have got their inherent design issues, the variable renewable energy systems also have their inherent issues. Obviously, everybody knows that uh, that solar panels can produce energy only when the sun shines and wind can produce energy only when the wind blows to a certain level. The issue is our peak demand is actually coming at 7 p.m. as of today. And people say that it is going to become in the daytime, there is going to be so much of air conditioners. I think IEA has written this report. I don't think ever we are going to see so many air conditioners in India that basically it will it will tip the peak demand in the new. I think it's very far-fetched to say that. Given our climate in the next 8-9 years, I don't think it's going to become that everybody can be rich enough to basically afford air conditioners and run the air conditioners. I think given the cost of electricity in most parts of India, I think people can just cannot afford to run the air conditioners even if they get some EMI scheme to buy the air conditioner. Okay. So... Given the issue that we have got around peak demand in the evenings or early mornings, uh, when people go to work and people, when after people return to work. So what, and industry obviously operates 24 by 7. So what you have is that you need to, all the distribution companies have to keep a lot of balancing power in reserve. The question is, what is this balancing power? The balancing power is, if 50 gigawatt of solar comes to zero at 6 p.m., how will that system work? How will the system maintain its frequency? See, the, the whole thing is we need to maintain the frequency of the grid. Even U.S. doesn't have one national grid. It has got three grids. We have one national, that's shown by the Texas debacle. So, we have one grid. So, we need to basically, the system needs to be balanced. The supply demand has to be balanced so delicately that we are operating at a very narrow range around that 50 uh, cycles, uh, 50 Hz. So, therefore, to maintain the frequency, you need power to be injected to the system when the demand is there. Otherwise, no shedding will happen. So, therefore, there is a need for power to come, more power to come up in the units. The issue is what is the source of that power? Today, it is basically largely coal, or rather only coal. We have gas-based power plants, but we have got 25 gigawatt of gas-based power plants. And unfortunately, because of the failure of KGD6, uh most of this capacity is you know, hardly ever operated. In fact, if you leave aside ONGC Tripura, which is basically based on the gas from silhet So the plants on the East Coast, particularly in Andhra Pradesh or the Gujarat, Rajasthan, NTPC plants, they are hardly operational. So the average peel-off is I think around 16% or so. So therefore, you have got these gas-based plants. But do they actually want to operate in the evening? Because nobody gives them an extra price for actually producing uh, power in the peak demand. And that is a key issue, that you are evaluating all the India energy exchange and all that. All the numbers show that the power electricity at 12 o'clock, is different from the electricity at 7 o'clock. The prices are hugely different because the supply-demand scenario is totally different. In the Western world, you have got this time-of-day tariffs. So, therefore, you are able to distinguish. So, you know very well that 2 rupees 44 is meaningless. It is not comparable with any other price because that is coming at a time when actually the the system is awash with power. So, people say batteries are going to come. Definitely, battery costs are reducing. And if they continue at this pace, batteries will form a good chunk of our, our system in the future. But we have got another cheaper option, which is called pump storage. And there are a few pump storage plants in India. And uh, uh, since you wanted me to explain it in a very simple term, pump storage simply means that water basically is in hydroelectric dams. Water, which comes from the dam, which is actually at, the, you know, at an elevation, at a height, comes down to the bottom. It is stored in a reservoir in the bottom. And it uses daytime power, which is cheaper power, maybe renewable power, to pump it back to the top, either in the daytime or in the night, when the uh, supply is far exceeding the demand, so that you can actually release that water around, say, six o'clock. And the beauty of hydropower is that the ramp rate is around 50% per minute. So therefore, it is a fantastic peaking power. So you have this pump storage, and actually, if you look at Japan, Pump storage is very common in Japan. They actually use what Many of our dams are designed for like uh, Sardar Sarovar, uh, even Nagarjan Sagar, Peri They are all designed with pump storage in mind. But what is actually happening is, what is happening here is, you are using energy to generate energy. That is, you are using cheaper energy when energy is available in, I mean, electrical energy is available in abundance to store, uh, to convert to potential energy by keeping the water at a height and then using that water to generate power when you need it at peak demand. These systems are already available. But what is actually happening is because the power policy does not distinguish between power at the peak time and power at the daytime, these projects are actually not economically viable today. And therefore they are language, they don't have a lobby. Okay, there are CEA reports which actually recommend that when you go for a more and more renewable, you need to basically reignite, so to speak, all these pump storage projects, and you need to commission them very fast. And the classic example we have got in Tamil Nadu, we have got a project called Kadamparai near which is a pump storage project which is working very, very successfully. And the reason Tamil Nadu does it because they got a huge amount of wind that comes in, in monsoons in the, in the northeast uh, monsoon, particular, October, November, December. So they need to have pump storage to basically beat this sudden, you know, downfall in the wind, etc. cetera, all this natural vagaries. So you need, you already have those systems. Again, this is proven technology. You don't have to wait for batteries to become cheaper. It's available. It is practiced in Japan, uh, which is the most advanced country in the world in terms of technology, power plant technology. You can use that. But what happens is the government policies, despite the CEA reports, etc. they are not actually looking at it favorably. And I think this is very much required. So if this pump storage projects come up and the projects have been, many projects have been designed for this pump storage. It doesn't require new dams to be built. It only requires a small, what is called a a small dam in the bottom to store the water, enough water so that you are able to pump it in the daytime or pump it at night to release during the peak demand, say one hour or maximum two hours. So that is what is required. So many things are available. So, it depends on how these things work out, how the cost of batteries comes uh, in eight, nine years. Well, everybody says a Moore's law and all that applies and therefore the cost will come down relentlessly, etc., etc. One thing that we all have to realize is there is a very popular saying that what cannot be grown has to be mined. Batteries use cobalt, nickel and lithium. Now, where are these materials available and what is the supply demand scenario for these materials? And today what is actually happening electric mobility is very much hampered in india because 40 percent of the car is the battery itself and there is a huge war out there for cobalt and cobalt is actually there large percentage of the world's reserves of cobalt are, are in the congo which i think all of us know is a war torn region which has got rife with child labor etc etc a lot of issues around that uh, lithium is more widely uh, spread in the world obviously Then nickel is also, you know, you've got a lot of nickel in Austria, in Russia, etc. So the issue basically is that it all depends upon when you are having something which is man-made and it depends on basically the raw materials that have to be mined. Are those materials available in abundance? In so much of abundance that basically when the need for battery storage increases exponentially, both for electric cars and electric uh, Jeeps and buses, etc., and also for grid-level storage, the, the supply-demand scenario is going to become quite different. And I'm very happy the IEA has, uh, recently published a report a few months back on this uh, raw materials for the future. And these are very scarce materials. And there is a war for all these materials. So you're going to have the wars that you that people fought for oil in the 1970s. Or we are going to have something similar for all these materials in the future. And it's already happening in the Congo.
1: Just uh, coming back, because we, we we digressed and I had a very interesting point to mention when you talked about, uh, you know, all the re- p- policy recommendations and uh, technology that is available. Uh, everything is available. You know, there have been reports, there has been data, there has been technology. You mentioned your, your report is so interesting in its own. Despite all this, uh, these plants have been operating You know, so so if you can talk about, you know, the kind of the political economy behind this, then what is the reason that these plants continue to operate despite being efficient? Who owns this plant? And most of all, when these plants close, who would be the ones that face the most loss? So just addressing the larger picture here.
2: Okay, see, larger picture is basically, you know, easily answered because these are mostly state government types. We have few private sector plans, but by and large, out of the 211 units, I think most of the vast majority of them are state government plans, because the private sector plans of 2003 well, are very, very few in number. So before the Electricity Act of 2003, there were hardly a few power plans, private sector power plans. The mostly state government plans. There are definitely a few NTPC plans as well. So these are mostly government plans. So therefore, the whole question basically is, the central government can lead the way. Uh, for the rest of the sector, by closing down its older units in Sangrave, in Korba, in Talcher, etc. So, for example, what has happened is that NTPC we had, you know, in my state, in my in the state where I spent most of my life, Jharkhand, that NTPC took over the Patratu power plant of Jharkhand State of Board, which had actually really sort of obsolete uh, power plants, forty years old. They knocked them off, and they are actually putting the entire area. They have planned to put five to eight hundred megawatt plants they already phase one is on now, uh, 3 to 800. So that's already happening. So therefore, NTPC has been doing it in a limited way. What we are only saying is that NTPC can do it even more. So therefore, somebody has to show the way, number one. Number two also what is happening is many state governments like, for example, Telangana. They are actually putting up a brand new plant called Yadadri, which is based upon the latest technology, super, uh, super critical technology they are already retiring their plants one by one silently. So there are states that basically are already doing this. So this will happen when the states are convinced that basically it is in their interest to close down the Volta plants. And the reason that the Atalangara state is closing down the Volta plants, because they have got uh, a, a very good, uh, uh, what I would say, uh, a person who is the uh, chairman of the Telangana Genco, who was basically convinced the chief minister if I have to operate the newer plants, I have to shut down the older plants and I still have my energy security and uh, I can manage. So therefore, they are actually shut down their older plants in Kothavadam. They are, 110 megawatt and so and already shut down their 62.5 megawatt plant in Ramagundam. So many of this, some of these plants that we have actually recommended, we have been discussing to the state gencos for the past two years or so. And many of, some of the 211 plants that we have mentioned have already been retired so because people see the logic that i got a new plant which is going to come i can i need to keep that plant utilized because otherwise the fixed cost per unit of that plant is going to skyrocket and therefore they see that there is a opportunity for them to retire the old plants transfer the manpower to the other upcoming units because the upcoming units also need people for operations so therefore this sort of alignment is already happening it is happening in a, what I would say, slowly behind the scenes are not very much in the public domain, uh, but it is actually happening. It is inevitable. It is it is sheer force of technical and commercial logic will take the sector in this direction. How fast it can happen, that's a different story. But I can show you out of the two hundred and eleven which are already retired. So we, from the discussion that we have been having, particularly in the southern region, where many of these plants are located, it is inexorable that basically the retirement of these older plants Will happen, of course. What I I, I believe is, if the central government comes up with a scrappage policy, like you have got the vehicle scrappage policy, which has been recently announced, if they come with a scrappage policy, uh, saying that they will incentivize, maybe the a scheme that w- that has to be given to the workers, those workers, many of these workers can be transferred from the older plants to the newer plants. I give a concrete example. Uh, we have got in Karnataka, we have got Raiture plant, which I got which. Many of the units we are recommended for shutdown because obsolete technology, etc. We have got a brand new plant here in Karnataka. Uh, one is next door to Raichur, which is called Yarmaras, which has been put up by JV between BHEL and Karnataka uh, Power Corporation, government plant, which is operating at I think in one year 1819, it operated 3% plant load factor. 3% brand new plant. And therefore, the fixed cost per unit, which the consumers in Karnataka are already banned. Because these plants already have power purchase agreement. Similarly, you have got a Kudki plant, 3800 megawatts, latest technology in Karnataka, which was operating two years back at 19% plant load factor. I am talking pre-COVID. So there are a lot of brand new plants for which already the consumers are paying through their nose because of the power purchase agreements that were signed in 2011-12 that are heavily underutilized. So there is an inexorable logic for pe- for people to be transferred from the retiring plants to these new plants, and therefore the new plants operate at a higher plant factors, and they produce the same amount of higher amounts of electricity with a much lower emissions, a much lower coal consumption, and very importantly, in many parts of India, much lower water consumption. So this this is happening. So what we are actually showing here is something that the industry is already doing. Only thing is the media is not protested
0: glad we could talk about it. I mean, I I really think that it's such an interesting and important topic, you know, how to balance the developmental needs, affordability needs, but also take care of sort of environment, not just climate, but the broader like water issues and so on. Uh, So, you know, like I had a few more questions, but I think you've covered some of them. So I want to ask one last sort of like big, really big picture question. Uh, as you may have noticed and seen in the media and otherwise, like there's a lot of pressure on India to like the OECD world and the rich world has sort of like declaring a phase out of coal. I mean, some of those countries have no coal or very little coal, but they're very vocal, Uh, you know, particularly UK and like Germany is taking 20 years for like, you know, one fourth of India's fleet and so on with a very flat demand uh, and so on but given all this like you know there is a lot of pressure there's no question and there are it feels like there's two streams of sort of discourse within india right like one stream supports this global discourse which sort of says that oh yeah we have to do something net zero targets you know talk about it. i mean they're not explicitly saying phase out coal, but, you know, it, it's implied that, you know, like coal, uh, but of course, there are some, like others who are saying, you know, we have to be careful, we have to think about energy security. And so what's your sort of big picture view on what India should do uh, where it addresses, you know, climate issues, but also makes sure that its environmental uh, needs are not impacted in the long run? Uh, and what do you think about the phase out idea? In the long run, of course, not in this decade or next decade, but
2: sort of in the long run. Well, in the long run, I think the direction is very clear. Our share of coal in the electricity sector is going to come down. There is no doubt about it. So, and that's what we are actually quantified in our report, saying that uh, our power generation will grow from coal. So from around 1000 terawatt hour to 1234, 1, exactly 1234 terawatt hour by 2030 from coal. But because the overall electricity generation uh, will increase to 2172 terawatt hour, the share of coal will come down from 71.5% today to 57%. The share of coal will come down. There is no doubt about it. But that is not actually happening because of pressures only. That is also happening because of the financial issues of the sector. Mainly because the power demand growth has not kept pace. It is not because of discomps or anything. See, let me just tell you, I worked in industry, if things are growing, you know, it is very easy to do everything. If things are not growing, see, the problem is our things are not going as much as the capacity that has been built. So I think there are enough studies that are available that our industrial capacities are not being fully utilized, and which is why basically the incremental capacity uh, investments are not happening in India, because nobody is, no private sector is going to put up a new steel plant, a new uh, aluminum plant. Or new or anything which requires massive capacity till the time the existing plants are fully utilized to around 75 percent of their capacities. So that is a problem with coal as well. A problem with power sector as well. That uh, because coal is not guaranteed must-run status. Therefore, they have they know that they have to basically compete with the other plants on the merit order. Already, the coal P L F which used to be 78 percent in 2011 or so has come down to 55. And it went to 60% about three years back. I suppose it's that. So therefore, investments have not come in. Fresh investments are not come in. And the IPPs that we have listed out in the report could not be completed. They are actually 61,000 crores already invested in those IPPs. And that those IPPs now not, don't belong to private sector anymore. They have been taken over by the lenders. and Largely, uh, the private sector, public sector lenders like State Bank of India, Punjab National Bank, etc. It's again public money, okay, so that is there. So larger picture, what I basically see is coal will actually share will come down. There's no doubt about it. But what I'm also saying is that coal also has to be both mining, processing, transportation, utilization, the whole coal sector, the whole value chain from mining till utilization needs to tighten its belt and needs to actually recognize the threat and the opportunity. The threat is basically closure. The opportunity that you have is that you have got technologies that are available to basically become more environment friendly. So what I actually look at is that two zero three zero we will have a coal sector which is going to become much more environment friendly, and I am talking right from mines up to power plants and including the transportation systems, etc. Uh, we have a huge amount of road transport in near the coal mines, which is causing huge amount of pollution and health issues for the uh, local communities. I think that needs to be stopped forthwith. So all these pressures will happen, and we'll become more. Uh, what I would say is, uh, you know, coal can never be basically completely environment friendly, but at the same time, it can actually minimize the damage to the environment industrial as well. So we have no gas, and as I told you, the hydrocarbon uh, reserves are not there in India. Our nuclear power is basically, unlike France, is basically very small. France is generating can afford to preach to others because they get. 71% of the power from nuclear power. Nuclear power is very strong in US, very strong in Sweden. And I think all of us know that UK is building one of the world's largest nuclear power plants with Chinese money and French, by a French company, EDF. So we have also, we are also look at basically how do we provide energy. And I think this is going to become a, be a challenge for us. And I think rightly what has happened is the government of India has resisted any pressures either internal or external and i know that basically many uh, climate gurus have been rebuked by the government in meetings for actually trying to bat for net zero and trying to put pressure on the government so therefore uh, i think it is not it is very very unrealistic to declare a definite date for net zero right now the good thing is india is actually so far being very much compliant with its commitments in the paris agreement in fact we are ahead of it we promised to have 40 percent electricity generation capacity from non-fossil fuels by two zero three zero. and incidentally what our report shows that we can actually reach 40 percent non-fossil fuel electricity itself, not mere capacity. We can reach 40 percent non-fossil fuel electricity itself by following the transition path that we have actually laid out. So we are ahead of our commitments and I think that is something the government has been uh, you know stressing. Saying that there are many OECD countries who have fallen backwards, and let the less said about US, the better. Okay, because US has actually increased its coal production in this year by 11%. So therefore, uh, uh, you know, basically, I don't know who who can preach to us. Uh, so so the issue is that yes, okay, we have got very limited sources of alternatives, and if you look at say battery, battery plus storage, etc. Yes, it is all fine technically. Everything is possible. We are yet to see a very large region of a country. I'm not talking about small islands or I'm not talking about, you know, small grids. Very large region, let us basically say, mid-atlantic region in the US. Or say, let us look at whole of Scotland. Are they completely 100% renewable that they can actually say, I don't have any other source but all renewable. Otherwise, they would not be building nuclear. Okay, so the whole question is that if you look at what the West has done as per the uh, climate agreements, they were proposed, supposed to actually give technology. Money comes later. They are supposed to give technology. We have been negotiating with ARIVA for a nuclear power, again a fossil fuel-free option for Jatapur. The costs are basically not in the public domain, but they are known to be very much higher. So, therefore, the issue basically is, what has the best done, the OECD countries in particular, to live up to their commitments in their climate agreements. Zilch. So, I think there is a need for, and the government is pressing that. I think Mr. Javadeker used to be very vocal about it that what are the contributions that the Western countries have made to the Green Climate Fund. I think we need to continue doing that because otherwise it is not possible to... Change will happen, as I just mentioned. Change is inexorable. It is going to happen, but we can definitely accelerate the pace of change. And good thing is that even Mr. bipendra Yadav, I think recently mm-hmm. has also made a statement and he has told that you cannot have a one-size-fits-all approach because every country and the UN if, uh, right from Rio the climate agreements have always been said that, okay, that there are different circumstances for each country. We need to be responsible. But also what I would actually say is that even the OECD countries, since you raised the point, have to be more responsible. They have to cut down their consumption. So today what has happened is they outsourced a lot of their manufacturing to China. And they say, I have reduced my emissions. Or oh, China's emissions are growing, And definitely today, India cannot be bracketed with China. China is far ahead of India. I think we have to recognize this as a fact. Their per capita consumption is more than three times that of India. Their per capita electricity growth, and they are actually in a completely different economic trajectory compared to India. And we cannot say because China is doing it, you also have to do it. These comparisons are obvious. And therefore, we need to be responsible, but we need to develop our own strategy.
1: No, I, I completely agree with you on that, uh, that we cannot be China. India needs to develop its own uh, strategy. Also, you know, the rightly you pointed out that the West that has pointing fingers at us has Done, you know, taking limited measures. So, so I believe in a month, we will have a lot of answers to that in the COP that happens. And we are expecting India to take a very strong stand out there. So I think it would be very interesting. And maybe we can revisit all what you have said today on the basis of what India goes and says at COP. So first of all, uh, thank you so much for talking with us. It's it's a very fascinating topic, and it's an issue uh, that if you keep taking a deep dive into it, you just keep going down. You know, there's so many assets to it as you started it in your introduction note there is environment there are people there's policy and you have to take care of everyone and and I'm just amazed at your ability that you covered everything in this so your report is fascinating I hope it uh, you know it reaches its conclusion and falls at the right table of the right bureaucrats and reaches fruition so thank you for that thanks a lot. Uh, for talking with us uh, and we would really look forward to have you again. Thank you. Thank you, Shreya. Thank you, Sandeep. And you're
2: free to pick up uh,
0: parts of the report and write about it. And, uh...
1: I will. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and from my side also, a really big thank you. You know, some of the questions that I have always been thinking about, you really have explained it so well and, and thank you for uh, trying to be non-technical. I know that that was one of the asks and it kind of, but I think I think our lot of our listeners will really benefit from this really immense and deep thinking about and a balanced view on this topic.
2: Thank you, Sabir. So really, Thank you, Shreya. And I think you realize that I'm a sort of contrarian. <laughs> okay, uh, but you know, basically, uh, you re- you require a lot of courage of conviction to be alone, and I I fought several battles alone. I think you know I'm not alone in this. I'm very happy to see you know very. People who are interested in a deep dive like both of you, I really appreciate and uh, thank you for your patience and you know for including me in this uh, delightful conversation.
0: For more information about the podcast, visit us online at www.101reporters.com slash podcast slash the underscore India, underscore energy, underscore hour. You can also reach out to us on social media and send us your comments and suggestions. My Twitter handle is at Sandeep Pai with a double I and Shreya's Twitter handle is at Shreya underscore J.